there's this idea in the community that if something doesn't come naturally, then it's manipulative. Oh, well, if that's not how I feel, then that's being manipulative. Well, how we do things repetitively might feel the most natural, right? Like our instinctive response is going to feel natural. That doesn't actually mean that that behavior pattern is in line with what we consciously want for ourselves. So often what we need to do instead of what comes naturally is something that does not come naturally, which I can understand people want to see that as manipulative. It could be positively manipulative in that we're actually doing something on purpose to set off a chain reaction that is actually in line with what we want. Not all of that sort of pivoting is bad. And I think people need to sit with that a little bit more because if the only thing that we should do is what comes naturally, our world would be honestly even more sick and disgusting and dark than it already is. People need to learn how to be dynamic and oppose what their brain and body naturally wants to do because that provides a, a whole new data set of information and world that we can live in. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today I'm interviewing Busy Gold. She is a behavior strategist and founder of The Break Method. She wrote a book called The Self-Study, which is available at theselfstudy.com. She's also the host of the Modern Good podcast, where she recently had me on an episode called A Captured Profession. So today we're going to learn about The Break Method and some of its many applications. Um, Listeners of this podcast, many, many listeners are in the mental health field or were at one point or were thinking about it, but many of us are kind of facing this crossroads the mental health profession is at. So anyone who listens to my podcast for gender critical content, which has got to be at least half my listeners at this point, um, <laughs> knows that one of my criticisms of the mental health industry is that we've entertained notions that are absurd and harmful, and, and it's been a huge discredit to the profession. And so there's kind of this question, I think, on a lot of people's minds of, is therapy dead? Can it be revived? What can we keep moving forward? And what are the virtues and pitfalls of maybe alternatives to therapy, um, therapy-adjacent practices, things like coaching or wellness-related practices? Busy brings something really unique to this conversation because she is not a licensed therapist. She hasn't gotten a master's degree in counseling psychology like myself and many of our listeners. However, she has really honed this system called the BREAK method, and it is actually an NASW accredited uh, therapeutic modality, meaning that as a non-therapist, she has invented an approach to doing therapeutic work that has been recognized by the National Association of Social Workers. So many of us, you know, hearing this for the first time might be thinking, how is that even possible? How, how can a non-therapist do that? But 
I think Busy's brilliance will kind of attest to the fact that as you listen to these ideas, there is so much value and there's going to be kind of an, a, a resonance with these ideas. Like, of course, that makes sense for helping people heal. Um, Busy is one of these kind of brilliantly analytical, logical, deep thinking, research minded people. So we'll get into some of the science um, behind the break method and and the theory, the philosophy and all of that today. And um, hopefully give listeners some new ideas about ways to disrupt the mental health industry, alternatives to therapy, therapy adjacent practices, and um, hopefully things that have a lot of practical value as well, because I know that's where Busy's mind is at. So Busy, welcome. Good to see you again. Yeah, great to see you too. Thank you for having me on the show and thank you for that amazing intro. I appreciate it. All right. So without further ado, what is the break method? The break method is a logic-based process that allows people to understand the brain pattern that was created during childhood and how that distorts their current perception of reality and dictates certain behavior sets, communication styles, personality expressions, that inevitably creates some sort of disharmony, chaos, or sabotage pattern in their lives, and we help them rewire it. We do this in a variety of different formats. Primarily, this is done in an online format. It takes somewhere between 16 and 20 weeks, and it has a series of very specific call structures that help extract data that we then use to assimilate patterns and create rewiring strategy. So if what, what are what's a situation where someone would want to work with you or try the break method? We see people with all types of presenting issues. We, My youngest client, for example, is eight. My oldest client is 72. We have people that come to us that are having marital issues, relationship conflict. We, I work with another organization that's one of the top sales organizations in the country. And I do break method with every person on their team so that we can establish what's happening in their team dynamics and how people's individual patterns are impacting the organization as a whole. So the application would be the same for a child as it would for an organization like this sales company. We also work with people that have eating disorder, addiction. Um, I work with self-harm and I'm also on the board of Self-Injury Recovery Anonymous. Um, the practice can be, like I said, applied to everything. And I think as we dig deeper in some of the questions, people will understand why one set sequence is so effective for all incoming or presenting issues. So there really isn't anything that we don't work with is probably a better answer. Uh, we've had a lot of clients actually that are transgender and have gender dysphoria. So that's been a, a budding I would say area of our practice, I would say I've always had gender dysphoric clients in my practice. My practice started in 2014, but I would say the newest generation is coming to me because of some of the gender critical content that they've heard, which has been a unique experience having somebody, in many cases, some of them are post-op, coming to me saying, hey, what you're saying resonates and some of the things that you've brought up make me realize that there might actually have been childhood wounding impacting my experience of gender dysphoria. Even though I have no interest in going back and undoing my surgery, I, I'm wanting to understand what made me this way. So that's been a whole new section of clients too that we've been working with. There are people that are open to wanting to understand themselves at a deep core level, even if that doesn't mean actually changing anything about the decisions that they've made. 
So somehow that population has found me possibly through some of my work with the truthful therapist and possibly with some of my work with uh, Buck, the Tranpa. I don't know if you know the Tranpa, but big fan of the Tranpa. So I think the work is the work is structured and the structure is ultimately what makes it applicable to all because that cliche saying the way you do one thing is the way you do everything, unfortunately is really quite true for the way the brain functions. Whatever we learn with repetition in early childhood, the brain seeks to recreate that in all facets of life. And unfortunately, we can't really get out of it because we can't see it. It is us, so to speak, until we learn how to create that separation. The structure sounds like a commitment and it immediately makes me think about sort of the difference between someone going to a therapist just kind of with the I need talk therapy weekly mm-hmm. or biweekly versus deciding I'm going to do the break method. When when you start off on a course of therapy, you might start with a significant degree of ambivalence about change. Um, and part of the therapeutic process can be processing that ambivalence about change. Because if if you really just if it was as simple as knowing what you needed to do and then doing it, nobody would need therapy, right? Part of the role of the therapist is to help that person sort through the parts of them that want to move forward and also the parts that don't, the parts that are comfortable where they are or that would have to give something up in order mm-hmm. to change. So therapy can be slow going. It can make room for ambivalence. Um, and the early stages of therapy are all about kind of figuring out what is our relationship as client and therapist? What are we doing together? What are our goals? But when I see the structure of the break method that you are making a commitment, it is 16 to 20 weeks, you will be getting on these calls, you will be doing this program. Mm-hmm. It feels like right off the bat, there's kind of um, a filter there. Like, are you ready to change? Is is that your intention? Absolutely. Or Yeah. So I have a great, great visual for this. And I would say the success of our program, because we have a 93% referral rate, the success of our program is because of what I'm about to describe. So have you ever been on a roller coaster? Are you a roller coaster gal? I don't love them, but I've been on some mild ones. Okay. I'm more into so, water slides. So for those of us, which ironically, I hate water slides because I'm claustrophobic, but you know, you and I, we can still hang out. We can still be friends and go to an amusement park together. So for those of you that are listening, um, to all my friends out there in the ethers that love a good upside down roller coaster, you know, the kind where the thing like straps down, it's like a deep commitment, right? Break is like walking up to the roller coaster and knowing that you are petrified, thinking about all the things that could go wrong on the roller coaster and wanting to run away. But knowing that you have a team of people that are getting you to the place of clicking on that harness where there's a point of no return. Because once your harness is clicked on, that roller coaster is taking off. There's nothing you can do about it. Once it's actually clicked and somebody hits that button, even if you wanted to get off the entire time, you can't. So what I love about this analogy is that getting onto the roller coaster and allowing that harness to be clicked onto you and actually surrendering, that is the hardest process, right? That is the hardest thing to do because people ultimately fear commitment above and beyond anything else. Once you commit, all of your most deep-seated fears can come true, right? Everything can turn on you. If we get ourselves to that place where we're willing to have that harness clicked down and there's, there's no getting out, the good news is 
you will finish. You will get to the end. That harness will come off and you will have successfully ridden that roller coaster. What we do with Break Method is we put a lot of intention and energy and support structures into getting people to clip that harness on. Because once the harness is on, you're off. You're going to get it done. Our, our finish rate is extremely high because of the support structure and knowing that we just have to get them through to a certain point where that harness is clipped on. So I think one of the things that might be important to maybe observe or compare would be when you go to therapy, right? And I think the way you described it, right? There's a lot of ambivalence. You need to slowly build rapport. That person's ambivalence can make them guarded. It can make them evasive. It can make them avoidant of certain questions that you're asking. So in essence, that makes therapy like a meandering stream, right? There's, It's not a rushing river. It is a meandering stream. Sometimes you get sections that have a little bit more flow. Other times it dries up and you're wondering if the client's going to stop coming and then maybe the flow turns back on. Break method forces the client. Obviously, the client is on board and they're very clear on what they're committing to. They're clear that it is a roller coaster, right? There's no... There's no gray area about what they're about to embark on, but it is a raging river of rapids for 16 to 20 weeks. And there is every bit of attention paid to making sure nobody gets off the ride until they got what they came for. I always tell people when they're on the rapids, I don't like to be bad at my job. I don't like to be wrong about things. So I've put in every single structure and checkpoint possible to make sure that once you're on this raging river, it's the last time you're going to have to get on it. So that when you get off, you actually fundamentally understand who you are, why you do what you do, why certain behaviors that ultimately lead to your destruction feel so justified in the moment. Because most of us, we feel so justified with our bad behavior. And there's a way that our brain has weaponized a system of language to make us fall into this trap repeatedly. So to go back to this comparison, right, meandering stream versus rapid raging river, When we're on the meandering stream, the client is able to delay the process. They're able to be evasive and stop the process. Sometimes you might have sessions that for two to three weeks are not productive. When I work with clients, because I've I've worked in therapeutic residential programs before, and the parents will come to me and be like, I don't understand. Why is my kid getting results with you so fast and they're not getting results at the therapeutic program? Part of it is the structure. There's no way for them to get out of it. They can't experience discomfort and avoid. They can't circumvent. They have to face and they have to face a set structure. I like to describe this to clients coming in as a rat in a maze. Unfortunately, there's no other way to describe it. When you commit to going through the process of break method, you're willingly committing yourself to being a rat in a maze where we change out different stimuli so that you can actually learn to observe how your brain pattern is creating essentially faulty or disruptive systems in your life. But you have to essentially be stimulated in these different ways for you to be able to map it. If that client is able to just decide their path, their brain is likely going to avoid all of the things that ultimately hold the keys to their healing. So in putting this person as that rat in the maze and helping them move through it in a way that does create triggering events, but it does these in a very specific sequence so that they can immediately understand, oh, okay, why was I just triggered? What thought process was happening right before I just got triggered? What was the language of that trigger and how does that 
refer back to this childhood pattern that I've already mapped. This is the process that ultimately gets people to the other side, understanding that being triggered it is important to the healing process. And going back to, again, meandering stream, a lot of people don't, they don't want to step into discomfort. And often a lot of therapists that I've worked with in terms of training with break method, they are trained to be, I would say, possibly too gentle in some regards. And they don't feel comfortable personally overstepping that line, that perceived line where the client doesn't want to be uncomfortable. And yet you as the therapist knows that if they just take two more steps, they'll actually feel more freedom. Many therapists struggle with knowing where that line is and feeling empowered to push. And I think some of that is maybe what you referenced when you first started off is that the way the therapy profession is gone, especially with insurance claims and cancel culture and people threatening licensure and all those things, it's, it was already hard to know where the line is. How do you know where the line is now? Because now every person is potentially a threat or a risk to your licensure. I, I'm sure that some of that's been talked about on your show. Has that been talked about? Oh, yeah. And the way I see it is that therapists work so hard to get to the point where we are able to sustain ourselves financially, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we we go to for a master's degree and then postgraduate internship hours and all these hoops and exams and everything to get our license. And then the the idea that that could be taken away from us just because of one very emotionally dysregulated client um, basically having, I mean, to put it a certain way, there's always a potential that one very emotionally dysregulated client could distort what happens in therapy the same way mm-hmm. they distort everything else that happens in their life. And that that would be weaponized against us, you know, that we could basically walk into a trap. And I think so many therapists live in fear of that. And that fear can be so paralyzing and it prevents them from taking risks. What I hear you talking about is being bold. It is sort of this direct, rapid, intensive intervention strategy. And to take your metaphors and put them in my metaphoric language. I like to talk about blocking the exits. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes when I'm working with parents and I'm helping them plan an intervention to address an issue in their family, we talk about all the ways that someone in their family might want to like while their way out of confrontation. And so we talk about what are the ways of blocking the exits. For example, um, let's say parents are worried about their kid who um, believes they are the opposite sex and they believe this because they've spent the last six months on Tumblr and in a certain friend group and they're getting social clout for it. Let's say that's where their kid's at, right? And the kid has a fantasy that grandma and grandpa would support or respect my so-called gender identity, right? So even if mom and dad come and confront me on it, well, I have this fantasy that I can escape to go to grandma and grandpa, right? So what does blocking all the exits look like? It looks like bringing grandma and grandpa in, right? And um, having them rooted in an understanding that we are all working together to protect the kid's long-term best interest. Teenagers have a habit of getting into um, reckless circumstances because they're driven by impulsivity and the need for social approval and their long-term planning and executive functioning capacities are years from being fully developed. Blocking all the exits, meaning we're having a family 
conversation where you understand that grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, sister and brother, everyone who cares about you is all worried about this. We all think that you're heading down a path that is socially influenced and that is going to, um, you know, if we don't talk about this, we're worried about you harming your body. Um, so, uh, that's sort of the blocking the exits approach to an intervention. And -hmm. it's one of those things that um, people are afraid to do because it's confrontational and because they're afraid of the kind of short-term reaction, right? When you are bursting someone's bubble and they're their sort of escapist illusion fantasy that, well, this other person agrees with me, or if I just avoid this, or if I just do that, then I can have this, and then I can kind of maintain this fantasy, rather than confronting um, that I am headed down the wrong path, right? And ultimately, it's going to work better for me in the short term to confront reality now rather than later. So another um, resource that's common for parents who are worried about their kids is uh, this book, Hold On To Your Kids by Gordon Neufeld, I believe, and, and Gabor Monte. And, um, and they talk about the concept of futility, right? That um, there, are, there are moments in parenting where your kid has to come up against a boundary that they understand is immovable, right? So it's not that if I just ask for ice cream or video games one more time, then I'll get it. I'm going to wear mom or dad down. It's not that. It's no, that is a wall. And no matter how much I kick or scream, that's not going to get me what I want, right? So you have to have that moment of futility. You have to have many moments of that in parenting for a kid to really understand where the limits are and then accept and adjust And so I think there's kind of this blocking the exits, this futility that is a really bold move to do to someone else. If you are parenting, if you are in the role of therapist, which can sometimes have elements of parenting, um, I think many people, whether as parents or therapists or in any role of responsibility towards others, it's like, well, who am I to tell them something is impossible or off limits? Or um, who am I to say, no, you really need to face your demons right now. We're having an intervention. Um, and yet at the same time, leaving any wiggle room when someone you care about or someone you're responsible for is heading down a dangerous path, leaving any wiggle room can just kind of prolong the suffering as well as some of the illusion. Whereas when we accept that there are hard limits, you know, hard limits to any kind of, um, you know, the extent to which we can get away with anything self-destructive or anything where we're sort of under some kind of illusion, then that does speed up the process, but it gets worse before it gets better. And I think a lot of people are afraid to go through the tantrum, the storm, the meltdown, the um, hitting rock bottom. So it sounds like that's... that's, That's one of the things that because it is a set sequence, we know where those bumps and bruises are going to happen. And we know exactly how to support the client through each of these different phases. And I would say the break method is another analogy could be like, it's an emotional Spartan race, right? You know that the Spartan race is going to be very challenging, but there's a start point and an end point. And to compare and contrast again with kind of the traditional talk therapy model, oftentimes there isn't a known end point right? It's, it's, it's done when we get to where we need to go. And in some cases, the client doesn't want to let go. In other cases, I've seen the therapist not wanting to let go. So there is no finality to it. There's no, 
there's no set period of time. I've found that having prepping somebody to be able to sustain a sprint for 16 weeks, yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, there are going to be moments that you're going to hate me. I tell people multiple times, but I used to do this work in person. I'll never forget this was the first time it happened. I watched somebody actually finally write down the truth that I have known for two months. And as soon as they did it, they looked at me and they crumbled up their paper and they're like, go ask yourself. And they threw up my paper, I threw the paper in my face, ran out. And I was like, they'll be back. I looked at everybody, I was like, that's okay. They just had to confront something that was really hard for them to confront. I'm proud of them for doing it. If I had to take an F you, it's totally fine with me. A couple minutes later, they came in, they're like, sorry, sorry. Just, I felt really exposed. I'm like, that's okay. And anger is your protective emotion. Let's get back to it. So I'm used to having moments of being the bad guy. And everyone knows that that is not only acceptable, it's expected. Every client we know is going to have certain moments where they're going to be kicking and screaming. But the idea here is that from day one, they know we run after you. I was sitting in a gigantic auditorium once when I was leading a group through an intensive and I started to notice this, this girl in the back row. She was just kind of fidgeting. Everyone else was really engaged. And I could tell she was checking her watch, fidgeting around her bag. And I just kept looking at her. I was like, this girl, she's going to leave. She's going to run. And I was, of course, standing at the front in, in heels. And I was like, excuse me, so-and-so, what's your name? She's like, uh, you know, said her name. And she looked at me and I started, I was like, just hold on one second. And I kicked off my stiletto heels and she just kind of looked at me like, uh-oh. And I was like, yeah, I just, you look like you're going to run. So are you going to run? Because I'm just going to take my shoes off because I will chase you into the parking lot. And she started cracking up and she was like, how did you know I was going to run? I was like, I could just, I could see the fidgeting. I kicked off my stilettos. I'm a really fast sprinter. Like, good luck. I will chase you out into the parking lot. She was cracking up laughing and she stayed the whole time and had a major breakthrough. And now that person works for me and it's six years later. So there are these moments where if I had just, let her fidget and do her thing and leave her whole, literally the whole course of that person's life would have been different, you know, from five years ago to today. So I think we build into this model of break method, knowing that people are going to try to self-sabotage. They are going to try to run away, especially when they're right on that edge of breakthrough. People do want to run away. They want to hide. They want to make you the bad guy. I think it's critical that we support people and not just empower them, but like excite them to go into experiences like this. These things build emotional resiliency. And people always say when they get to the end of the break, that was the hardest thing I ever did. And I feel so excited. I feel like I just graduated college with a degree because you have to dig so deep. And there are going to be moments when you don't want to get up and you don't want to keep going. But because we have that support structure in place, people do get to the finish line. And you brought up something that I think is important, that in client sessions, a client can easily become emotional, emotionally dysregulated and spin a story or a version of what just took place that's ultimately not even close to objective reality. All sessions in break method are recorded like this on Zoom. And I'll tell you why that's so important. I would say out of every 10 clients, perhaps, maybe seven of them, I'll have to actually ask them at the end of the session, hey, I'm going to shoot you this recording. I want you to take a few minutes. I want you to think about a couple things. Then I want you to go back and watch minutes three to minutes seven. And then let's set up another call. And I want you to tell me your thoughts after you observe that. People have no idea 
how they're even coming across. So that story, right, through being emotionally dysregulated that they come up with in their head that they would go tell to somebody else, they now have to go back and watch the session and watch that reality come crashing down. We call it reality vertigo in my practice, where all of a sudden you realize that what your brain has been making you believe actually is not at all in line with objective reality. And you have to face that possibly many other instances in your life are much the same. It's a tough moment to go through, which is why we call it reality reality vertigo. It kind of makes you feel like you're on a bad acid trip. But alas, having that confrontation with reality and understanding that when we are emotionally activated, we stop being able to perceive reality in many cases in a way that we can be collaborative, right? You and I could both be in an emotional state. If we both got pulled into two opposite rooms and polygraphed, we would both believe what we're saying, but that doesn't mean that it's actually objectively true. And I think for a lot of people going through break, this confrontation of like, wow, I mean, it just I thought that that was true and I'm not lying. And then that can still ultimately not be in line with objective reality. It's a tough pill for some people to swallow. And I would say in today's society, we're moving even further away from that than we already have been. How are you sleeping? Sleep is a foundation of mental and physical health, equally important to nutrition and exercise. Yet it's often the first thing to go during times of stress. Good sleep can help alleviate depression and anxiety symptoms, maintain a healthy weight and metabolism, protect your heart, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. Yet still, a third of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main reasons. Before I got an eight sleep, I was already an expert in sleep hygiene and practiced what I preached to my clients. But I would still wake up overheated in the middle of the night and unable to fall back asleep for one or two hours. Adjusting the air temperature and blankets was not enough. The mattress itself was keeping me hot. But now, I'm sleeping soundly through the night and waking up refreshed thanks to my 8Sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. If you'd like to be more patient with your children, more emotionally stable with your partner, a fitter athlete, or more efficient at work, take it from me, a mental health professional. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being and the lives of everyone you touch. Go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout to start sleeping cool this summer with up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And yes, to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Like a rapid um, escalation of some of the process that we sometimes get into in relational psychodynamic therapy. Like I'm thinking about transference and countertransference, right? Mm-hmm. And that uh, for for therapists who have a relational foundation, as I consider myself to do, I'm pretty eclectic, but I, I, I say the relational piece is foundational for me. That 
what the client projects onto the therapist is important information. Um, You know, so moments in the therapy where the client is, um, let's say, says something like, why would I want to hear what you have to say? You're just going to tell me I'm a failure. Right. Or the client saying, well, you always tell me I need to be more positive. You know, and, and I'm hearing this as a therapist saying, I definitely did not that. That's not something I would say. That doesn't sound like me. So, wow, here's a really valuable opportunity in the therapeutic process to um, notice how, as you said earlier, busy, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Whatever is going on in your life, in your other relationships, that's going to come up in your relationship with your therapist. And in therapy, we, you know, in relational psychodynamic therapy we we use those moments of transference and we we draw on and learn upon learn from our countertransference to have moments with clients where we can kind of explore that like oh so you remember me saying this or or when i said this you you heard it this way tell me more um but what you're talking about is kind of this next level of that where you're like, no, go back and watch the, t- t- the tape. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I'm not even – at this point, I think people are so clear on we're here to be efficient. We're here to get to work. It's going to be hard. We're not going to cut any corners. We're not going to smooth it out. We're just going to get right into the hard stuff. To me, if there's certain clients that I know are going to have a really harsh experience of reality vertigo, I might prep them. Hey, I think, for example, when you go watch this, be prepared for this and this and this. This might pop up. I want you to sit with it. If you need to go back and watch a few times, that's fine. I will prep certain people, but often it's just like, hey, you know that thing that your wife says that you do? Why don't you go back and watch minutes 10 to 15? And I think you might actually see why your wife says that. And then let's check back in. And usually they'll come back and they're like, oh my God. I think because we set this standard that we are all here to observe our own data and patterns and ultimately take a step back so it doesn't feel as guilty and shameful like I am a fundamentally bad person. I am I am a mean, angry person. There isn't any of that because we've taken a step back and we're observing self take these actions or act this way because we're now understanding through the process of break that ultimately these things aren't actually you. It's your brain pattern, you know, puppeting your mouth and changing the way your eyebrows or your facial expression is, but that's not fundamentally you. And I think this is one of the most stark contrasting points with where we've found ourselves today is this idea that we just should radically own our personality. Well, I'm just going to radically do me you think you're radically doing you, but the reality is that's just you radically owning all of the ways that your brain pattern influences your behavior in a way that's very much like a reflex. It's not authentically anything. All it is is repetitively the pattern that you tend to perpetuate. I think what people start to be able to see when they take that step back and they see that this isn't me being a bad person. This is my brain actually hijacking my body and doing things that I'm ultimately not aligned with so I can observe it and learn how to change it. This allows the client to not be in that guilt, shame, remorse, regret, because ultimately I don't think those emotional states are very productive. They don't, you don't have a lot of momentum when you're in guilt and shame, right? I just always think of that as like dragging a gigantic weight behind you. You can't rapidly transform if you're stuck in guilt, shame, and remorse. So 
when we get clients to be able to observe these things from that kind of, you know, out outside of self perspective, it allows them to very quickly take radical personal responsibility. Yeah, I saw that. Wow, I can't believe that. And often there's a sense of humor and levity that rises up in that client where they're like, all right, touche. I'm an a-hole. I never would have seen it, but I just watched the session and all right, let's go. I'm more empowered to get to that next session. I've had a client who now I'm working on another project with, but early on in the work that we did together, and I think I might've shared this with you briefly. It's coming back again. I think I might've shared it with you briefly after our podcast last time. This particular client was so upset and triggered that I could understand their entire brain pattern in 30 minutes. They called somebody on my team was like, you can't put me in a box. Nobody can put me out. You couldn't possibly know all that in 30 minutes. Enraged. And the client was very upset. His support staff member called me. I was on a chairlift up skiing with my kids. She's like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm panicking. He sounds so mad. And I was like, Go back to my notes and show him exactly where he is in his cycle that I already mapped for him and show him what's actually going on. Do not back down for a second. She's like, but he's so mad. I was like, I don't care. Don't back down. And if you feel like you can't hold that line, put me on the phone. She didn't back down. The next session I got on with him and he says, okay, so I didn't share this with you, but I'm a mathematician. I was like, cool. Sounds awesome. I work in the tech space. And essentially what he said, and I'm, I'm kind of glazing over this here was, I ultimately really wanted you to be wrong and I wanted it to be impossible for somebody to put me in a box in 30 minutes, but you were correct and you were correct to a mathematical degree. And now I want to actually work with you on a bigger project. So this person, because we held that line and we didn't back down, even though he wanted to keep escalating to get this person to back away, because arguably that's what he does in his life is he gets to be the authority figure in all things because people ultimately don't want to go head to head with him because our program doesn't allow this. He was able to have massive breakthrough. Now we're months down the road building a building a tech based project together, which is pretty cool. So how does it work? I we kind of like we we dove into the middle of it, right? But so someone is drawn to your break method, and you talk about making the decision to do break method as making the decision to get on a roller coaster. There's a moment where you're strapped in and you can't go anywhere. And yes. again, my lingo, all the exits are blocked. Yes, so, blocked. So a person makes this commitment and what are the steps? So once a client is committed to the process, we have four different modules that they move through. The first one is mapping. We want to actually understand what the series of inputs from childhood are that created a certain set of outputs. So the first period is all based in data extraction. So again, to contrast to more the traditional talk therapy model where meandering stream, we're allowing information or narrative to come forward as it's comfortable or as the therapist guides, there's a very specific sequence by which we extract data from the client's mainframe of their brain, right? Everything that we look at is essentially using this analogy of the brain pattern functioning like a virus on the mainframe of your brain. We know that the body and brain experiences all types of stimuli in its environment and encodes that to memory that we can be using or accessing from conscious thought, but also certainly from subconscious. And I know in your field, you would refer to that in many ways more as unconscious. So that memory and information is stored 
And we help clients go through a very specific process of uncovering the data or uncovering the memory inputs in a way that takes out the ability to narratively experience them. And it also takes out the ability for the client to understand what's being extracted until it's already out. So in many cases, when a client looks at some of their exercises, they don't understand cognitively why something's being asked or what's being utilized until it's all out on the page. And then we teach them how to look at the information that was extracted. So in many ways, we'll have clients look at us and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I was that honest. I've never, I've never said that before. I didn't, I didn't know that. And now that I'm looking at it, that's absolutely true, but I wouldn't have ever put those things together because we can't block the information flow. A lot of times when we're in storytelling mode, our brain can actually be in self-deception or evasive or avoidant, even without our awareness of it. So we don't realize that our brain is trying to get around a certain high target piece of information, but we do and break. So we have a process of being able to extract that information in a way that the client can't block, they can't move around it, but they still then on the next step learn how to understand it. So once that information is extracted, then we go through pattern assimilation. So the first process is that kind of discovery and mapping. And then the next process is all pattern assimilation, understanding how the pattern has created tentacles out into their communication style, into even their sexual behaviors, into their fantasy life, into communication style, personality expression, their relationship with money. We look at every single area and facet of daily life and also big picture, big decision-making life. And we make sure that that pattern holds true in each area because we're always making sure that we account for nuance. And a good example of this would be the brain pattern that I have makes me thrive consistently in career. But historically, for the type of pattern that I have, intimate relationships are always the most challenging. So there's a very specific set of reasoning behind these two pieces. But for some brain patterns, there is that dichotomy where it's like, in this way, I'm great, no problems. But that same skill set, right, the way we do one thing is the way we do everything, when I translate that into intimate relationships, it creates a lot of problems. So when we look at these different facets or areas of life, We look for the subtle nuance in how this pattern in this area of life will dictate or make you perceive reality in this way, and it'll create these sets of imbalanced behaviors that need to be corrected. And then when it comes to money, this is how this pattern creates a flow of destruction. So we make sure that we look at every area of life so that when we're creating rewiring strategy, we're not leaving any areas open because I find a lot of practices or therapists that will come to us to get trained, they tend to stick in certain areas and won't, for example, really dig into people's existential belief systems or spiritual belief systems, right? Like that tends to be kind of off the table. That might be too personal. Or maybe that doesn't really have any, they believe that that might not have anything to do with anything. Or maybe people really don't feel comfortable talking about how people's sexual fantasies or intrusive thoughts tie back to this pattern. We, again, similar to the the roller coaster analogy where it's like once you're clicked in, we're just doing it. We don't leave any of those stones turned down. We flip them all because if you leave one area 
without being rewired or understood, that one area is enough to kick back up the whole pattern. So everything that we do is about sustainable rewiring. And because of that, we can't just leave an area alone that makes that client feel uncomfortable. So we do go into all these areas from sexual fantasy and intrusive thoughts to eating behaviors. We even go into people's relationship and understanding about the death process because I found that for a lot of people that is intimately involved in their anxiety pattern. So we can't really fully address that person's anxiety presentation without understanding fundamentally what it is that you actually believe about the process of death. And for a lot of people, they're like, I don't like thinking about it. It's like, I don't like thinking about it either. Alas, we still have to do this if you want to get free. So when we go through that process, that kind of third third step of the process, we're really looking at how this pattern really has tentacles out to all different facets of your life. And then the last phase of the cycle is applying rewiring strategy through pattern opposition to each of those different areas. So by that point, we would have had all thought processes, language, behavior patterns, all mapped and we understand where each one's presenting, how they're all presenting within a timeline because the timeline piece is very important. People often will experience something that they might just call overwhelm, right? They're like, I'm just overwhelmed. Well, what is overwhelm? Overwhelm is really multiple different experiences that your brain is just kind of all putting into a junk drawer and just labeling it as one thing. But to me, overwhelm is kind of a waste of a word. All it makes us understand is that There's more work to understand and discern what's ultimately happening along the timeline. So we do a very specific process of making sure that we are sorting through that junk drawer, right? I'm sure everyone, you know, that grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, every one of our parents had a junk drawer. Did your parents have a junk drawer? Mm -hmm. Right? There's like overwhelmed junk drawer. That's a good analogy. Yep. Right? Like who knows what's in there's some there's like random dominoes, a battery, screwdrivers. I'm trying to think of what a, like a random tampon. I'm sure there's a bunch of random stuff in people's push pins door. and rubber bands. Push pins, things that when you go rifling through it, you hurt yourself. I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe there's a razor blade in there from somebody trying to, <laughs> you know, clean the the glass on the windows. That junk drawer is a high, it's a high value target for us because the brain wants to avoid that at all costs. And whenever something's uncomfortable or we're too close to having that really deep emotional experience, a lot of us just keep throwing stuff in the junk drawer and that thing just piles up, piles up. And whenever we experience it, maybe we'll label it anxiety. Maybe we'll call it overwhelm. Maybe we'll call it depression. We have to be able to, through a very process-oriented way, sort through the junk drawer. And most people's brains, when they're still operating in pattern, will they won't do that. That is the roller coaster. They don't want to open the drawer. They don't want to look through it. They don't want to go through the process of sorting things out and figuring out what has to get thrown away because a lot of that stuff, it's got to go. It's not supposed to be there, right? It's it's there because we're nostalgic or because it's tied to parts of our emotional pattern that we're addicted to running, but ultimately don't need to run anymore because we're not a child. So I think in that process of going through the rewiring, we have to actually look at throughout the timeline of your life, what are these different like tokens and things that you just keep putting in there that you refuse to let go of that are deeply impacting you at a fundamental level? You've just now been taught to radically own them as your your personality when they couldn't be further from, from that fact. So once we get through that phase, they actually begin their rewire period, which is a 30-day period after the completion of the program. So this is that like 
if ever there was a true sprint, that's the true sprint where they have their final strategy document. They know exactly what's expected of them. They know all the traps their brain sets for them. They know how their brain will weaponize language against them, and they know how to meet that language and dismantle it. They know all of the different hacks and bobs and weaves to get out of certain things that their brain might present. Because the idea here is during that 30-day period, we need to try to be as close to 100% accurate with every single piece of work and tool that we've learned as possible. Because if we can do that for 30 days, we will have actually changed who we are at a chemical level. Most clients, when they're rounding from module two to module three, their lives are already a complete 180. By the time they get to the end and they're like, well, I'm just now starting my rewire period, like my life is already different. How could it get any more different? It still does. There's always another level to which you can become free and change at a core level where you're not white knuckling, you're not trying to do something. I find that a lot of practices now are like, you know, not affirmative in the way that I think in your show we talk about, but like affirmations and mantras, right? Like kind of swapping in some sort of positive belief. To me, these are overrides, which might be a good temporary mitigating strategy, but will not actually change your fundamental thought processes. You can try all you want. You can keep trying to hypnotize yourself to believe that you really are enough. But why not actually get down to the core of where your brain started to populate the thought forms that are able to trick you into believing that you are not enough instead of always having to pop a bandaid over that and being like, no, I'm beautiful. I am enough. In break method, we tried to get to that deep core level of why the brain is weaponizing that language against you and, and why it sounds so believable that it's been masquerading as you this whole time. And I think at the end of all this, when somebody gets to that rewire period, they're very clear that all of these things are are not actually who they are. We have a, a lecture at the end called The Misconception of Ego that helps visually describe to a client how, you know, in whatever language you as the listener want to align with this, we can just call it like your God-given spirit or, you know, Something that is that magical essence that you can't describe, that no matter how many science experiments they do, I call it the 3% rule, right? There's always this, they're like, but we can't quite describe this. You know, the people that want to believe in evolution, it's like this, but there's still this part. So whatever that is for you, that's that like that spark, that magical essence that it's like, you just can't quite describe it. That ultimately at a core level is who you are, right? You you are truly unique and expansive and able to move far beyond the physical confines of your body. But everything we experience with repetition in early childhood, it starts to create this series of inputs that actually create a distortion field around that light. So when people are misunderstanding us or are constantly taking us as abrasive, what might be happening is that that filter of distortion that we have around us, it is making our personality come off in a way that is abrasive. We might be overly direct and we might not actually mean that at our core, which is why we feel so hurt. Like, how could somebody think that about me? Why, you know, I would never do something like that. Well, when people, for example, get to go back and watch some of these things, they're like, oh my God, I'm seeing it the way other people would see it. And they realize that, this distortion field, it's really just our brain's adaptive response to try to survive. 
right? So whatever it was that you were trying to survive in your childhood, we put up these walls and we have these reflexive responses that ultimately don't really serve us as adults because we're trying to react to things that in many ways are not actually happening. So we're wondering why people are having their feathers ruffled by us when the reality is this light that we're aware of, they're not seeing it that way. Like we're trying to emit this bright yellow light and what people are getting from us is this like poop colored brown. We need to learn how to rewire this distortion field so that people can actually see us for who we are and that we go back to being dynamic. People have lost the ability to be dynamic. We are just essentially one way. Oh, well, this is just how we do things in my family. Like, I'm just a loud person. Own it. Deal with it. Is that true? Or do you just not actually know how to pivot and be dynamic and try other things? And I would say one thing on top of this that might be relevant because it just keeps coming up is there's this idea in the community that if something doesn't come naturally, then it's manipulative. Oh, well, that's not how I feel. Then that's being manipulative. Well, how we do things repetitively might feel the most natural, right? Like our instinctive response is going to feel natural. That doesn't actually mean that that behavior pattern is in line with what we consciously want for ourselves. So often what we need to do instead of what comes naturally is something that does not come naturally, which I can understand people want to see that as manipulative. It could be positively manipulative in that we're actually doing something on purpose to set off a chain reaction that is actually in line with what we want. Not all of that sort of pivoting is bad. And I think people need to sit with that a little bit more because if the only thing that we should do is what comes naturally, our world would be honestly even more sick and disgusting and dark than it already is. People need to learn how to be dynamic and oppose what their brain and body naturally wants to do because that provides a a whole new data set of information and world that we can live in. Wow, Busy. (laughs) Uh, So, so many gems there. I'm wondering where to start. Um, One, one little mantra was just coming to mind from way back in the day that I did a yoga teacher training in my early twenties. I remember this expression that will make sense to anyone who's into yoga and won't make sense to anyone who's not. (laughs) It was candy asana leads to truth decay. Um, Meaning, if you just do the poses, the asanas that feel good to you, then you might be losing structural integrity because it Mm. could be that the things that really bring you into balance um, are the things that are the most uncomfortable, the things that don't come naturally. But there's freedom in recognizing that you are that, that sovereign soul that is not tied to the ego structure of just doing what you've always done. Uh, You talk about sort of emptying the psychological junk drawer. And this also makes me think of um, habits that people get into with regard to pleasure and pain. So, you know, a lot of people who come to people like you or I for help, they're caught in cycles of pain and and they tend to gravitate towards whatever brings short-term immediate relief. So that could be an unhealthy relationship with food or alcohol or other substances or bad habits, spending too much time on social media, you know. And it's sort of like I'm at this low baseline because I'm depressed or anxious or as you say overwhelmed. I'm I'm in the junk drawer. My junk drawer is spilling over. And so I just want something now that's going to make me feel better 
And so I go for that short term. But we know that if you if you go for that short term reward, what comes after that is even though your pleasure chemicals might go up in the short term, they actually go down in the long run. And that's how cycles of addiction form. And so something a lot of people who are caught in that cycle don't realize, though, is that you can actually reverse that pattern. It's not just that, oh, I have to eat foods that are healthy but taste yucky and I have to do exercise that doesn't feel good. It's that actually by doing things that require moving through resistance in the short term, uh, things that might be temporarily uncomfortable or you could say on some level painful but in a safe way, um, by going through that pain, you actually get more pleasure on the other side. Just like drinking tonight uh, will give you that short-term pleasure and give you a hangover tomorrow. At Mm. the same time, exercise is one of those things that's the opposite, right? You push through the resistance, you do the thing you don't want to do, and then you get the endorphins, right, afterward. And you also get the long-term confidence boost, the brain-derived neurotropic factor and things like that. But it's not just exercise. It's not just eating well. This even applies to things like deliberate cold exposure therapy, where you are momentarily putting your body through something that's really uncomfortable, but that is safe, um, meaning exposure to cold, which mimics the sensation of pain. But then afterward, you get that boost of all the feel-good chemicals. Um, so I think that the the psychological junk drawer is and, and the overwhelm is just like oh, I just don't want to deal with it. It's just too much. I you know and there's the resistance and what can I have right now that's going to distract me from the sensation of overwhelm? But actually, I think where a lot of people need encouragement is nope. We can unpack this junk drawer. Everything in here either goes in the trash or it has a place that it belongs. And by getting through this, what might feel like a sacrifice or a challenge in the short term, we actually break that cycle and start feeling better so that we're not feeling so low in the first place. We're not feeling that need to self-medicate with whatever the habit might be. Yeah, I think that's beautifully expressed. I think in that same way, it's also important to remember, I love the workout example that you described because- Also, as you keep repeating this pattern opposition, right, of going into the discomfort of the workout because ultimately you feel better on the other side and you do have that endorphin rush, the pain actually starts to decrease, right? It starts to get less uncomfortable, which allows you then to keep pushing further, right? Maybe what used to be hard during a 20 minute workout now it's a hundred it's a hundred minute workout and maybe then it's a 120 minute workout and i think when we look at a structure like this something that's highly repeatable i know that if i just for example buckle onto that roller coaster i'm going to get to the other side and then i'm going to feel great some of that is certainly what gets people through the process and break because they do have these incremental moments where they're having these big breakthroughs and they can see the structure that they can repeat that got them to that breakthrough. So I think some of that is absolutely why we've built out break the way that we have. And when we get to the other side of that rewire period, I think that's why it starts to become automatic. It's not something that we have to try to insert or to try to swap out kind of more from the CBT, DBT, where it's like you have to kind of choose this, not that. 
it fundamentally changes who you are. So it changes your thought process. So you're not having to try at the end if we've done it correctly. It actually just is what your brain now knows how to do, which is the same with, you know, workouts, yoga. Eventually what used to be hard is now it's your new pattern and it's your new, your new easy. As a therapist, I've gotten an up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. I know you have so many valuable concepts and sort of uh, phrases that you've coined as part of the break method. Um, Before we start recording, you mentioned the concept of generational fruit. You also talked about four different research paradigms. And I'm thinking with the time we have left, um, maybe we could sort of stop by all those concepts along the way as we take one sample issue. Um, So last time we spoke, you mentioned that that one of the things you have used break method for is oppositional defiant disorder or more broadly, not necessarily, someone doesn't necessarily have to have that clinical diagnosis, especially if they're coming to you rather than going to a therapist, you're not giving a DSM diagnosis. Correct. But let's say a child with oppositional reactive behavior, a child who Mm -hmm. instinctively says up when you say down. Um, Let's take this sort of pattern because uh, you have some insight into this pattern and help us understand how the break method would map and then work with that pattern. So most important thing when we work with families is that we have to know the brain patterns of each member of the family system. So our first step in this process is to always do the brain pattern assessment for each member of the family. Obviously, if there's like a two or three-year-old, we're not going to do a brain pattern assessment for a child that young. But even for kids in the five, six, seven, eight range, we do work with the parents to get a snapshot of what that child's emerging pattern would be because they all play a foundational role into how the home environment is contributing to that child's experience. So I'll use an example 
I worked with a family last year who had two sets of adopted kids and then also two of their own kids. So large family, a lot of different dynamics going on. We had to do the pattern diagnostics for everybody in the family to try to understand how each of the children were presenting behaviorally in the family dynamic. One of the children would have presented in the way that you described this very oppositional reactive behavior, which is what drove them to come to break method in the first place. When we work with families, we first want to understand how the parent's dynamic is impacting the child. We have a term and break method that we call symbiotic dysfunction, which essentially helps us understand that both counterparts in the relationship in general tend to have opposing pattern types. So I've never in the history, and I can stand by this firmly, never in my career have I seen a married couple that have the same pattern. They always have counterparts to each other. So this is such that one person triggers the person in the exact way that they need to to fulfill their pattern, and their response to being triggered is exactly what the partner needs to fulfill their pattern. So some of this could be looked at like the opposites attract sort of cliche statement. There is definitely some truth to this. When pattern types that are the same possibly go on dates, uh, just to give kind of a broader context to people that are listening, what often will happen is they'll either completely repel each other because they're too similar and it would be like a car having two steering wheels and two brakes and two gas pedals with no, there's no, where would the car go? How would people decide what to do? So they can completely repel each other, but you also can really friend zone each other where they're just, there are too many similarities that there's not enough polarity to actually kick up the relationship. So when we look at the relationship between mom and dad, we need to understand the pattern dynamics that are at play with how they are interacting with the child. Then we need to look at how the child's pattern type interacts with each of the parents' pattern types individually. So in this case, this child was adopted. So we have to kind of glean a picture from a variety of different sources about what type of environment they were raised in. But then we also do the intake with that child. So at the time that I was working with that child, they were 13. So they were definitely able to give some some decent color to the intake questions. So we were able to get a really, I would say, solid pattern diagnostic from that child. When we go into their behavior strategy sessions, we're trying to understand the way that child perceives the safety in going with authority, right? This child had no authority figure that used their authority justly or consistently. So that is kind of the core wound that tends to be involved in a child that presents with that oppositional reactive behavior is that they fundamentally do not trust that adults or caregivers broadly use their authority either justly or consistently. That alone can be the cause or at least the correlation between the behavior output of being oppositionally reactive and the input. And I think it's important for us to take a moment here to realize that that's pretty nuanced and has a lot of context on it because a parent that might be there and be trying their absolute hardest that possibly has a little bit harder of a time emotionally regulating and maybe they're sleep deprived and their reactions are not consistent, that alone, unfortunately, can create that lack of trust in the caregiver. 
And maybe throw on top of that, maybe marital issues in the home where dad's not really picking up the slack when there's a baby around. Most families have some level of this. It is hard without a process like break method or without really digging into therapy to heal yourself enough to not be inconsistent and reactive when you have young children. Young children push all the buttons. They have explosive diapers. They won't sleep at night. When one kid finally is better, the other kid gets sick, right? There's just every day has the potential to be a perfect storm event that can push all of your buttons and push you out of your best self. So I think I'm saying this to remind people that it just doesn't take that much, unfortunately, for a child to no longer trust the authority of their parent. So if we take that into account and then we realize that even above and beyond that, parents do actually have some serious personality disorders and some communication styles that are not only abrasive but abusive. And some parents really do use their authority, not just unjustly, but abusively. So we can kind of see this spectrum from, you know, accidentally using your authority unjustly or inconsistently all the way to being overtly abusive. Any of those things in that spectrum could set the stage for the child to present with that oppositionally reactive behavior. So we need to understand what types of behaviors that child experienced with high levels of repetition. So I know in your field, people talk about ACEs. ACEs are definitely important. And I think the way we approach that idea in break method is that your emotional homeostasis is ultimately created by what you adversely perceive in repetition. So whatever is perceived as some level of adversity, even though maybe to you that wouldn't seem all that traumatic, but that's all I knew in my life. So those were the first traumas I experienced. Whatever those things are that happen with some level of repetition end up creating the foundation of that brain pattern. So an example, going back to this idea of it being hard to be a parent, right? In those early years, especially if you have multiple kids, it just doesn't take that much for you to be inconsistent or argumentative or abrasive or use your authority in a way that's not consistent. So if we look at those early age ranges, those are what really truly create that parent, the child's brain pattern. So we want to typically look between the ages of two and five for what the child experienced that was both repetitive, right? It can't just be one one-off events. It has to be something that had some level of repetition and it had to be something that that child perceived as something adverse. One analogy that I like to use that I think can help people understand this is coming off of a Taoist philosophical term called the poo. Have you heard of this? The P-U, poo. So the poo is the uncarved block of wood, right? So this idea is we all start this uncarved block of wood and life slowly whittles away and makes us take shape, right? So each one of our shapes will become unique and different, but we all kind of came in this block of wood. So when we look at the relationship of this uncarved block of wood and something like ACEs, whatever the child experiences that is something other than love, innocence, and curiosity, the child will perceive adversely. So even if to you it's not that bad, if it's not love and it's not supporting their innocence and supporting their curiosity, it will start to chip away and carve away at that block of wood. So those are the things that we want to make sure we're very clear on for the child and understand what the chips were or what the carvings were at the hands of the parents so that we can start to understand the way that they're now projecting some of that onto 
these new adoptive parents, right? Because now this child in particular is no longer in that same environment. They're with different parents than they had before. So an example of this, they moved into a family that was very Christian, um, very much an authoritative parenting household, very consistent, lots of rules. So a lot of parents that adopt, they're like, oh, well, I'm giving them a great home and now we have money and now they've got rules and support. Of course, like their life is going to be so much better now. Well, bad news for you is their brain is addicted to an environment that is very much in opposition to what you're giving them. So even though what you're giving them should be better, it's actually some of the most triggering experiences that they can have because they don't know how to function in that environment. So everything is not only brand new, it's in exact opposition to what makes their brain feel safe. So for example, this parent, when they came to me, everything that they kept doing, they were trying to, but I'm being so consistent. I'm like, okay, well, we've got to, whoa, we got to pull back a little bit because what you're doing is not the problem at this point. What, how they're perceiving reality is what we need to work on first. So once we understand all of that dynamic, we focus on working with everybody separately until the end. And then we build all of their patterns back in and all of their strategy documents together. So we need to work with the child on how they are labeling their current reality and how they're experiencing, in this case, adoptive mom and adoptive dad. Then we need to talk to mom and figure out how their behavior can have a little bit of radical personal responsibility behind it. And they can see how they might be falling into the exact traps that I've just described. Because that mom will now know, okay, these are all the ways that my child is perceiving what I'm doing. How can I pivot these things to kind of soften as they're starting to make a lot of the changes at the the level of understanding inside of themselves? So it's definitely a deep process. I don't know that we have time to go through all the rest of it, but Essentially, we work with everybody separately, understand how the dynamics at home are being perceived in a way that's not intended or not yielding the results that everyone in the family is looking for. We have each person work on their their behavior strategy individually, and then we build it all together for that rewire period. So the rewire period, everyone's already been working on their own individually, and there have been, you know, kind of weekly strategy sessions and so on. But once we get to that rewire period, the whole family meets. So when I met with that family, every single person was on Zoom. We went through everyone's document all together so that everyone could see what the other person was working on, what to hold that person accountable for, and then they all sprint together. So in those family scenarios, when a child sprints at those behaviors, we usually see complete radical change within that 30-day period. But I will say, not just with this family, but most kids with, you know, the way you tried to describe it, the oppositionally reactive behavior, typically by call number two and three in break method out of a a six-call sequence, typically that child's behavior has completely turned around because the parent has now understood, oh, even though I thought this was the right way to get this accomplished in my family, doing it this way actually stops serving my child exactly what they're looking for. So the child's behavior usually resolves very quickly. I'll say adults are much slower than children in cases where usually the parents are like, my child's a nightmare and they just want to get all, you know, like they're, they're not able to be helped. We've seen everybody. It's typically that the child actually changes really rapidly. And then the parent is a little bit slower to catch up. That's much more common. Well, and some of the themes I hear uh, from your sort of case study of this 
you know, oppositional defiance in a family with adoption where Mm -hmm. clearly there's attachment issues. There's a lot going on there. But I'm hearing themes like pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And you talk about what makes a person's brain feel safe. And and that makes sense. And that harkens back to previous conversations you and I have had off the air about some some of the foundational principles of break methods. So it sounds like part of your philosophy is that um, that the brain thrives on pattern recognition and that one of the first things that a child does as they're developing is sort of maps the pattern of, of their environment. What can I expect from the people around me? How are they going to behave? Um, what do my caregivers consider right and wrong? And then they sort of build their own behavior to navigate that. And it's this sort of predictability of the environment, even if what's predictable is chaos Bingo. or, yeah, that, that the predictability itself makes someone feel safe. And I think that you know, I see this a lot in adult therapy where let's say someone who came of age in a high conflict, high drama or chaotic or in- unstable environment will unconsciously keep creating more chaos in their lives because that's just kind of the the pattern. That's the familiar pattern. And if things settle down, there's a sense of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Um, so some really great concepts in there. You know, we don't have time to hear all of your kind of brilliant um, ideas. I know you did mention generational fruit as well as the four different research paradigms. Do you have time to explain either of those? Yeah, absolutely. So, and maybe additionally, I can, I'll put up those two lectures and maybe those are two things that we could possibly link to because they're, they're two specific lectures. One is called Escape the Paradigm and it's helping people in the mental health field understand how the different research paradigms impact the information and data systems that are generated out of them. Because I think not often we pay enough attention to that. So the four primary research paradigms are the positivist. So positivist is that there is one reality and we need to essentially create a research system that allows us to observe that one reality. Then number two is interpretivist, which is that each of us create or perceive our version of reality, but there is also ultimately one reality. So there's one objective reality, but we all interpret that in a way that's subjective. There's also critical theory, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard of critical race theory. This establishes that there is some level to which oppression inherent in systems is partially responsible for how data is organized and put out of the research paradigm. So I think this is one that is actually one of the newer out of the four. And when you look at that one, I'll I'll leave it to you to go do some research on critical theory. You can see how when you set up that paradigm and you're setting up to essentially study how systems of oppression influence information or data, it's not hard to see that what you're going to get out of that is, in fact, that systems of oppression influence data because that's what you just primed that's yourself That's what you're to. looking for. That's what you're looking for. So I think that one, of all of all of the four, and I'll get to the fourth one, but of all of the four, that one to me is the most glaringly obvious that you're not actually trying to just study anything. You're actually trying to spit out a very specific example. You're attached which is, to an outcome. 
Absolutely. So of all the ones that don't really make sense to me, that one doesn't make sense because you're not actually trying to objectively describe anything. That's a very subjective experience and everything in that is very much going to disclude any information that doesn't look at how Mm -hmm. systems of oppression influence data. So the fourth one is the constructivist. And as you and I talked about before we jumped on, I think this is absolutely what has set the stage for the affirmational care model. The constructivist research paradigm is that we all create our own reality and there is no such thing as baseline objective reality. So I think it doesn't take much to see that that is an inherently dangerous idea and it actually goes in opposition to the natural laws of the physical world. I think we can all acknowledge that while we might have our different interpretations of reality, there is certainly something that is unfolding that a camera could capture, right? So this idea in constructivism that it just it is what we make of it and there is no such thing as reality has given birth to exactly where we are today. And I think this is tangential, but This is exactly what I think the people that are very into transhumanism and the proliferation of AI want us, is that, well, once we merge with machine, we can just make our own reality. So I think constructivism is laying the yellow brick road, so to speak, down a pathway to hell and transhumanism that I think is pretty scary. I think when we look at how these research paradigms impact our world at a large scale, we have to keep into account that this is what shapes all of our understanding of information in our world, from scientific experiments to psychological experiments to sociology and so forth. Everything in the academic field passes through a filter like this. So when I look at where we've gotten to today and especially what's happened in academia, you can see that we are passing through things like with like filters. And because of that, we're getting like data sets. And I think my frustration is that we're it's so obvious that we're missing something, that there, there's, you know, that je ne sais quoi, there's some like missing element that I think a lot of us that are trying to pursue truth above anything else, like above and beyond what we want or what we want to believe or what we've been programmed to believe, when you're really trying to pursue truth and what's best for the human collective, eventually you bump into someone is manipulating data at the most fundamental levels to block us from truly healing. And I think that's where I continue to land at this phase of my career is less less than who is blocking this information. I think what we're seeing is that Some of these paradigms are actually what's blocking information because we're limiting the scope of data and and we're already trying to describe how we're trying to observe it, which is making us fall victim to cognitive entrenchment or in this case, paradigmatic entrenchment, right? We can't see beyond what we're trying to focus on. And I think for us to take a leap out of where we are now, We have to all recognize that within ourselves and within both the academic and scientific research communities that if we keep approaching things that way, we are going to stay stuck to some level where we are. And to kind of bring this full circle to what you brought up in the beginning of the show, when we were going through the process of accreditation, 
the accrediting bodies want to see that what you're doing is already something that's been proven, right? Like we'll only accept you if you can show us that what you're doing is something that we've already stamped our approval on, right? So essentially with break, we had to try to fit all of this bulk of information and like pass it through all these little holes that helped check off boxes, even though that's not the way the information flowed, right? So often in the field, right, we're trying to, information is starting from this paradigm and flowing out. We had to try to take all this aggregate information and try to feed it through these small holes that checked off boxes. I think this brings an important moment for us, which is I understand that people see that there's a need for regulation, right, and oversight. And I absolutely believe this to be true to some degree. But I think how quickly does that turn into gatekeeping and weaponization and where is that line, right? Where is the line between regulation and oversight and manipulation and control? I'm not here to answer that question, especially at the end of an episode, but I think that's a question that everyone involved in this field needs to ask themselves. And how are we limiting our attempt to heal the human collective and and human psyche by our belief around that things need to be this regulated or you have to have this credential or no, just everything goes. There's some line in the middle, and I think that needs to be personalized for each each one of us individually. But there needs to be something, right? I think more people need to be willing to allow creation and uh, creation from all rather than creation from this narrow-minded paradigm because it's not yielding the results that we need. If it was, we would have a much more healed human collective. And I think what we're seeing is the exact opposite. I think we're seeing a widespread mental health crisis. Wow. Well, (laughs) thank you for your brilliance, Um, Busy. You have so many gems. I appreciate you sharing all of them. And uh, let's, let's figure out where people can find you. So as we started off with your method is called the break method so that that's it what breakmethod.com yeah you can either go to breakmethod.com or thebreakprogram.com either one will get you to where you're going and if you wanted to check out our 30-day workbook that you can do at home it's called the self-study so it's just a home study workbook I would say if break method is 100%, the self-study is about 1%, but it's a 1% that's been really impactful for a lot of people. It's broken into daily micro lessons over 30 days. So if you're looking for something that just allows you to do a small commitment, it's about 20 minutes a day for 30 days. Hey, I think there's a lot of people that are kind of looking for structured but not too intensive mm. sort of self-help programs journaling this is a good it's a good little point of entry and we have a lot of therapists use them with clients and then we have a lot of addiction recovery programs that use them in the recovery program so oh, it's a great. great way to just start to understand what's in the junk drawer and how it got there and also why it's still there and and mm. why your brain doesn't want to sort through it or move it out that workbook is at theselfstudy.com. It is. Um, and your podcast, again, is The Modern Good. You have me yeah. on the episode, A Captured Profession. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also pretty big on Instagram. That's where I think you and I originally connected. 
I'm, I'm not that big on Instagram. I, you know, everyone's like, I thought you'd be way bigger by now. <laughs> um, I don't put a lot of energy and intention into it. I find social media to be often quite annoying, but <laughs> I do try to relate some of the messages and thinking that we have in Break Method through little bite-sized pieces on reels. I think, you know, you can probably resonate with this. A lot of times, my perspective on a certain issue or on a certain even word that's thrown around a lot in the therapy space is very much in opposition to the belief of the day. So I try to do my best to give another voice to some of those things, especially on social media. The whole toxic relationships, narcissistic personality, uh, gaslighting, stonewalling, all of those therapy terms, I think, often are getting used by social media influencers to build up their brand or their coaching practice. And I believe they're weaponizing a lot of those words against people and they're destroying a lot of relationships. So I try to do my best to shed some more objective light on those terms and help people understand not just the behavior presentation, but what the thought process likely is behind that behavior presentation. Because I don't think enough people work on that. It's like they'll call out the behavior that their partner's doing, but they don't actually seek to understand why. So a lot of our our work is to help people understand why so that you can desire to collaborate with them rather than feel hurt by what they're doing. And since you brought that up, I'll just add that there's, you know, there are, there's a minority, a small minority of people who have pathologically disordered character structures, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's a much larger subset of people who are humans that can fall into patterns that look like that sometimes. And there's, there's an important conversation to be had there about our quickness to throw out labels like narcissist and gaslighting and things yes. because those labels are very useful for what they describe and they're also easily weaponized and overgeneralized. So I'm glad that you bring more specific language um, that is insightful and really designed to help people break free of their patterns because that's that's what people are looking for when they're trying to find a, w a way out of their suffering. So, Busy, so great to have you. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.